Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. A new report from Human Rights Watch paints an alarming picture of how China is undermining academic freedom in Australia. It details how students from mainland China and Hong Kong studying in this country have been subject to surveillance, with some being intimidated and harassed after voicing pro-democracy sentiment. It also uncovers instances where tutors have been targeted for speaking out on sensitive topics such as Taiwan. The report argues that the federal government and universities should be doing more to ensure the safety of staff and students and preserve academic integrity. Sophie McNeil is the Australian researcher with Human Rights Watch and to talk more about this, she joins me online. Great to have you on the show, Sophie. Hi, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And before we get to the findings, I'm interested in how you actually conducted research for this report. Who did you speak to? Sure. Well, we started hearing these stories um, from Chinese students studying here who were kind of alarmed at how their universities were reacting to a whole range of incidents. Um, and these were students who didn't support the Communist Party and who partly their motivation for wanting to study in Australia was, was because they thought they would have more freedom here and be able to express their opinions. And they were quite alarmed, you know, to come here and find out that they were still under surveillance, you know, that they were being watched by their classmates, that they didn't feel free. Um, they couldn't actually express their thoughts here or be critical of the Chinese government because of this, this fear of being watched and the fact that that would have repercussions for their family back home. So once we started hearing those stories, um, I started to get in touch with these students and, yeah, ended up doing nearly 50 interviews for this report over a couple of months. So half uh, students studying in Australia from mainland China and Hong Kong and half academics who either specialise in China studies or predominantly um, um, have a large cohort of students coming from China. So it was hard to do these interviews because the students, you know, some of them had returned to China, so you have to use kind of secure apps to talk to them and things like that, encrypted apps, because um, there really is a fear of repercussions um, if they're seen to criticise the CCP in any way. And and so, yeah, did you experience that when you did reach out to some students where um, even though they might have had these experiences, they might have been reluctant to talk because they were worried about surveillance and being intimidated as a result? So many. So this is the thing. I, well, I did uh, nearly 50 interviews. There is, yeah, dozens and dozens of people that I learned about or were told about or had the details for that wouldn't talk to me because this fear is just... You know, it's so deep, and it's, it's not just a fear or a chilling effect. I mean, that certainly happens, but there are actual, you know, real-life repercussions and cases that everyone knows about of people who've suffered really high personal costs for speaking out. So, you know, we documented three cases in this report of students whose families back in China had been visited or questioned by the police because of activities that they had engaged in in Australia. So everyone, all of these students, you know, they, they live in fear of their parents back home suffering the repercussions of, of um, you know, being visited by the police. But, you know, we've also had a case of a student who had their passport confiscated because they were found, um, they were reported on by classmates after expressing support for democracy in Australia. So it's not just a fear, it's actually, you know, 
really scary stuff happens to these young kids. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, in terms of being reported on for activities they've conducted where they've voiced pro-democracy sentiment and that sort of thing, I mean, what kinds of activities are we talking about? Is it sort of, um, uh, you know, full-blown activism or is it sort of more, um, you know, tempered support for for kind of pro-democracy in that kind of a way? It's stuff that to us, you know, we wouldn't think is that big a deal. You know, mm. so the, the guy who got his passport taken, he spoke out in a WeChat group um, when there was a controversy at his uni and said, oh, you know, I I think democracy for Hong Kong is, you know, not that bad a thing. You know, wasn't a, a, a huge kind of uh, down with the CCP message. It was just, just supporting, expressing support for democracy in Hong Kong. And, and that was what his some of his classmates found, you know, offensive and worthy of reporting him on. And, and you know, it was really alarming that, that since he returned to China, his passport was taken um, seemingly as a result of this threat by classmates to report him. Um, so it's that kind of thing, expressing support, but it's also, you know, going to a rally perhaps. So a lot of students in 2019 went to a rally to support um, to express support for democracy in Hong Kong and that kind of outed them to fellow classmates that they thought differently mm. um, it's on your on your um, social media you know posting messages perhaps about Xinjiang or all, all of these kinds of sensitive topics are often the, the tipping point for when these incidents of harassment or intimidation occur. And when you talk about being reported on by fellow students, I mean, do you have a sense that this is kind of an orchestrated push from the, the Chinese Communist Party to have students spying on others and reporting back? Or is it something they're kind of doing more as a result of, um, you know, the world that they know and that they inhabit based on, um, you know, the education system and, and the media systems in China as well, that of course, a very pro-CCP. This, this is the thing. We've seen these portrayals of Chinese students in Australia by some media that it, uh, you know portray them all as spies and are really quite racist mm. portrayals. The thing is, it's not. It's not like that. It's not that simple. You know, you're not kind of getting the government recruit um, students. Uh, you know, in, in their masses to be spies. That's not how it happens. It's the the. The young people who are doing this reporting on um, have only ever been exposed to one way of learning, right? And they they come here, and that's you know that's just the way things are. They're taught that that's what you do, and so we have sympathy for these young people who are really easily exploited by the Chinese state to do this um, reporting on and surveillance. So you know, the young people are often self motivated. They're not kind of acting on instructions from the consulate. It's it's really not that simple. But we feel that there's a lot universities can do to to protect them from that state exploitation so that they're not engaging in this behaviour because what we've seen happen is that there's no deterrence at the moment for them doing this the government, the, the unis have kind of really looked the other way, not wanted to talk about these things, swept them under the carpet, there often hasn't been investigations or, or you know or, or any punishment for this behaviour so you know the, the, there's yeah we kind of, we, we have great sympathy for the people who are being reported on and are harassed and intimidated but we also can understand these young people who um, come from this incredible system um, out of China and then suddenly arrive here where, you know, people have different opinions and that's not something that they're used to, you know. So it's really confusing for them 
them, and we think the universities need to do more to protect both of these um, sides. You know, the nationalist students and the ones who want to criticise the CCP both need protection here. Yeah, it's a really good point, I think, because we've seen, particularly through the pandemic, um, you know, uh, strong sort of anti-China and anti-Chinese sentiment take hold um, in various pockets as well. So it would be really unfortunate um, if the result of, of sort of learning about these really important issues from the report was to be suspicious of Chinese students. And as, you know, as someone who teaches it at universities, that's something I'm kind of very aware of, not sort of playing into that kind of stigma. I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Sophie McNeil, Australian researcher with Human Rights Watch, all about their new report into how China may be compromising academic freedom in Australia and also putting students and their families in danger. And on that note of what universities should be doing, Sophie, I mean, do you have a sense that they have in a way turned a blind eye because of the heavy reliance on international students and particularly students from China um, over recent years? I mean, we definitely see a link between between that, Dylan, because why else haven't, you know, Australian universities um, been acting on this? I mean, we do feel that there has been a culture of silence on these issues. And what was really sad is that when you interview these students who experienced harassment and intimidation, when we asked them why they didn't report it to their unis, because more than half didn't, they said, oh, because the unis don't care about students like us. And when they say like us, they mean, you know, students who want to criticise the CCP. So that they, they clearly said that, you know, they think that their unis care more about maintaining relationships with the Chinese government um, and, the, and not alienating students who are supportive of the Communist Party. So that, that's clearly the belief that these students have who aren't reporting these incidents. And I think when you read the report, you know, it is 100 page long, <laughs> pages long. It's very in-depth. It's very nuanced. Um, so we go into a lot of detail, but you, you can see these patterns of behaviour from, from you know, not, not just kind of one state we're talking about. We did interviews with 17 universities across five states and territories. So you can see these patterns of behaviour. Um, and the universities, you know, you do have sympathy for them as well because, you know, they were encouraged to follow the full fee-paying Chinese student market by the, by the government. And, you know, they were encouraged to have close research links with Chinese state institutions. Like, you know, like lots of sectors in Australia, the university system thought things would turn out differently with China. You know, everyone kind of, everyone's hopes around how how things would go. And I think what we've seen in the last few years, increasing authoritarianism under Xi Jinping, it has had real repercussions for these young people coming here to study and, you know, in quite large numbers. And so um, you, you can no longer kind of pretend that these students don't come from this authoritarian country and that it that it doesn't affect their lives in many different ways. It's, it's a reality that universities have to deal with and, and basically just start talking about because they haven't been um, so far. But we've had a bit of good reaction from universities um, since the report has come out. So we're hoping to work with unis on some really practical ways to come up with um, solutions to better protect these students and also staff. Yeah, and I mean, on the one side, there's the university as an institution and all the kind of the admin support that could go towards, um, you know, better allowing students to access support if they do experience intimidation and harassment. But there's also teaching and, and lecturing, which, um, you know, a lot of which is done by, um, by sessional staff who don't necessarily have expertise, um, you know, in, in the geopolitics of China or even have specialised expertise in some of the human rights um, issues and abuses that China has perpetrated. So um, do you, I mean, based on, on your interviews with people from universities who are teaching, do they feel that they sort of need more support? To, better, to, to be better equipped, I suppose, to address these issues when and if they come up um, in the course of teaching? 
hundred percent. I mean, I actually feel like the teaching staff are the ones caught in the middle here, and we've documented instances of of staff trying to talk to you know the higher ups about some of these issues and just kind of getting no engagement, not not wanting to discuss these issues. So teaching staff worried about what effect will the the new national security legislation in Hong mm. Kong have on their students. You know, this is a law that that criminalizes criticizing the Communist Party, and it, it's extraterritorial. So even if you criticize the Communist Party in Australia, if you go back to Hong Kong, you can be jailed for that. So, you know, how does that affect you if you're teaching students from Hong Kong? Staff wanting to have these conversations and universities not wanting to discuss it. Um, there's some best practice that we cite in the report. And so, you know, La Trobe University has done some good work. UTS in Sydney has done some good work. So there are some really practical things you actually can do to protect students. Because one thing unis have pushed back and said, well, you know, how can we stop our students' parents getting that knock on the door in China? And it's true, you know, they don't have that power, but you can stop it getting to that point, right? So the student that who, who did get the knock on the door in China, who did get his passport taken, if he had felt comfortable reporting the harassment, or if the student who um, threatened him had been punished um, when he made that threat, um, rather than following through on it, perhaps it wouldn't have got to that point. But the problem is those two things didn't happen, so it did end up in that worst-case scenario. And we're saying you can do, by speaking out, by providing some deterrence, by laying a very firm red line to students and saying, look, you can't engage in this behaviour, and if you do, you know, you'll violate academic code of conduct and possibly lose your spot, then I think that would do a lot to these instances not occurring, rather than, you know, unis just not wanting to talk about. Um, because, you know, we're really careful to point out that it's not just... Um, it's not the majority... Oh, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> Woken up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, work, well, working from home, um, uh, the, the, the perils of that. Absolutely. Um, but it's not the majority of, of, of students who, who engage in this behaviour. It's definitely not the majority of Chinese students in Australia. The majority don't get involved in political disputes. But it's carried out, you know, this harassment intimidation is carried out by a small but highly motivated and vocal minority. Um, and so, you know, we think that universities can can influence them and, and lay, do more... Um, uh, kind of change their policies to lay down the line and discourage them from acting like this. Yeah, well, it's a really interesting and worthy report. So well done on bringing it all together. It's, it's very richly detailed and, and makes for really fascinating reading. It's um, been a pleasure chatting with you today on Triple R, and I think your dog's hungry, so you better, better get out there and, and feed them. <laughs> there's, there's someone at the door, so okay. yeah, politicians or not. No worries at all. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Dylan. Cheers for having me on. Cheers. Bye. Sophie McNeil, the Australian researcher with Human Rights Watch, talking all about um, their very interesting and um, important report into how China's reach is compromising academic freedom in Australia and putting students and their families in danger. You can find the full report on their website, um, and it is written in a very accessible tone. Um, Sophie, of course, is a former journalist, which I think um, aids in, um, in the ease of reading that report. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. The pandemic has changed our politics in this country in unexpected ways, with a record stimulus provided by the federal coalition government coming after years of talking up a budget surplus and state leaders playing a prominent role in leading various policy responses through the National Cabinet. These strange dynamics were on show once again in the past week as various premiers pushed for a lowering of international arrivals and spoke out against uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's unexpected announcement on the availability of uh, 
of AstraZeneca for under-40s. George Megalogenis has been doing a lot of thinking about our current political circumstances and what they might suggest about the role of government into the future. He's gathered these together in a characteristically clear-eyed and insightful manner for the latest quarterly essay, which is entitled Exit Strategy, Politics After the Pandemic. And to chat all about it, George joins me on the line. Great to have you back on Triple R. Thanks, Dylan. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Um, Thanks very much for your essay as well. It made for a fascinating read. One line in particular stood out to me early on. Um, You write that Australia is once again in danger of snatching mediocrity from the jaws of achievement. And I think that uh, sort of speaks to a lot of our sentiment at the moment as we watch the uh, sort of vaccine rollout stagger along. But maybe let's start with the positives. What did we get right at the beginning of the pandemic in this country? Yeah, last year, if you uh, if you were to if you were to put Scott Morrison, Boris Johnson, and Donald Trump uh, in a corner, and you know a clairvoyant told you that two of the three uh, would completely uh, muck up the response to the coronavirus, not only would they not take the virus seriously, uh, they'd catch it themselves. Um, Scott Morrison was in the middle of the of the uh, I don't hold a hose phase, the bushfires at that point. So we're talking January uh, 2020. Boris Johnson had just signed um, into law. uh, He finally got Brexit done and Donald Trump was just about to be acquitted uh, for the first of the two impeachment trials that that he faced over the course of that uh, 12 months, the next 12 months. So you would have put you would have put some money on Morrison being one of the one of the two that mucked it up, but he he sort of stood aside from both Johnson and Trump because we we always look at Johnson and Trump as the as sort of as sort of their anti response to mm. coronavirus. But, but Morrison is Morrison with Jacinda Ardern uh, is in that very very small category of national leaders that not only took the virus the virus seriously but basically gave himself over to expert advice. And I think the thing with both Johnson and Trump, I know they, they, they tend to be extreme cases, but it could have been Morrison because that's the way Morrison was behaving leading up to the uh, the pandemic, uh, because he didn't take advice from anyone at that at, during the during the bushfires, obviously, because it wasn't his problem apparently. Uh, Morrison gave himself over to advice, and the advice was pretty good. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. Uh, I've got a couple of public service heroes. I don't I don't like doing this normally because they tend to. Uh, they tend to uh, sort of generate some envy in the system if you start identifying. But there are a couple of a couple of public servants who really did a good job, and and I'm thinking not just the health officials, but people in Treasury and a chap running the Bureau of Statistics by the name of David Gruen. Across across the bureaucracy, health, uh, Treasury, and the sort of collection of statistics, that group uh, were able to a give good advice. B, be able to track the economy as we were shutting it down, and C, well, this is the most important thing, uh, very quickly able to stitch together a safety net to make sure that, you know, in that first period of lockdown when Morrison and the Premier's accepted the advice to lock the country down, there was obviously a bit of argy-bargy between them, uh, we not only locked down, uh, we made sure that people didn't go crazy in lockdown, at least financially. Uh, there might have been other reasons why you might have lost the plot in the lockdown, but we... We, A, shut down, and B, uh, underwrote that shutdown, uh, probably better than any other country, probably apart from New Zealand. 
It's really interesting to me how there are these historical sort of touchstones littered throughout your essay that can help us understand some of those decisions. And, and one of those is the um, early 1990s recession um, and then the global financial crisis as well. And this kind of ties in, I suppose, with the, the role of prominent public servants in giving you know good and, and sound advice for the best uh, sort of governmental approach as the pandemic really took off. In what ways did those experiences perhaps inspire some of those early measures? Yeah, that's a good question because going back to the original analogy, uh, Trump lost count of the number of people he had working for him because he, remember, he would sack somebody every six months. Mm. Um, and there were obviously a couple of people in the health space that were advising him that, you know, he got into, he got into some sort of um, arm wrestle with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example. Uh, the Brits had... Sort of some sort of public service continuity, but they were on their third prime minister, and Brexit pretty much demoralised uh, sort of the British system uh, because no one, no one in the public service would have advised that you cut yourself off from the largest trading block on the on the planet. In Australia, and this is interesting, uh, if we've got time. Obviously, I'll take yeah. you, I'll take you through the steps. Uh, you know, I was in the press. I first went to the press gallery in 1988, uh, which makes me relatively old man, <laughs> and. In the late 80s, uh, we, were about to, we were about to enter our third recession in 15 years. And this was something that, that Australia was not good at. Australia was not good at crisis management. Uh, we had a very deep recession in the mid-70s, which sort of has got Whitlam's name attached to it because he's Prime Minister at the time. John, uh, Malcolm Fraser and John Howard as his Treasurer had a big recession in the early 80s. And then we're about to go into that recession of the early 1990s with Paul Keating, uh, with Bob Hawke as Prime Minister. And I had to remind myself of this because it's interesting when you sort of count back to all the recessions we had after the Second World War, even the one in the early 60s and the one in the early 1950s, they all had something in common, which is the public servants didn't trust politicians. They had good reason not to trust politicians. But when, when the economy turned and, you know, when people stopped spending and, and employers started letting go of staff, their advice to government each time, and I made sure I double-checked this, each time in the 50s, 60s, uh, mid-70s and early 80s uh, was do not spend more money. Whatever you do, don't spend any more money because you'll make it worse. Mm. And, of course, there would be, there would be obviously political tension that at some point the politicians would sort of break through the public service advice. They'd try to hold the Treasury line up to a point. Reserve Bank would be sort of crashing the economy with higher and higher interest rates to sort of, you know, teach us a lesson for having spent too much in the boom. And then the politicians would spend anyway. The budget uh, would blow out. The budget would go under the deficit. And then sort of after the economy recovered... The government usually lost an election because of the recession. Everybody would point to the deficit and say, aha, see that deficit? It didn't stop the recession. Next time around, whatever you do, make sure not only you give the same advice, but make sure that the politicians follow it this time. And the thing about the early 1990s is, uh, with Hawke as Prime Minister and Paul Keating as Treasurer, they actually followed the advice to the letter. So they kept the budget in surplus in the financial year that the economy went backwards, which was 1990, and think about what that meant. The economy went into recession. A uh, quarter of a million people lost their job in that 12-month period, uh, a bit over a quarter of a million, and uh, we're still in surplus. Hooray. So what happened? <laughs> the recession was deeper than it needed to be. It took longer to recover. There are other reasons as well, but fiscal policy, as we call it, which is taxing and spending in the budget, uh, was working against the interests of the real economy, working against the interests of 
both employees and employers. And Paul Keating, it took him a while to figure this out, but after he challenged Hawke, lost his job, went to the back bench, he, and I've discussed this with him, so I've got a fairly clear idea of what was in his mind. I discussed it with him at the time and then subsequently when it was sort of easier to piece through the advice and piece through his reaction. He said, I did everything they asked of me and we still had the deepest recession since the Great Depression. So what happens next? Keating becomes Prime Minister, actively uh, goes into spending mode, which was 1992, uh, into 1993. It takes a while for that spending to hit the real economy. By the time it hits the real economy, uh, the economy is recovering, and this spending, as the advice said originally, this spending is actually going to be worse uh, uh, for the economy because it's going to hit the economy when the economy is growing. Now, all these things should have been knowable to economists, but economists still had this sort of prideful idea that politicians are stupid and that if the levers are pulled as the economists have um, recommended, then you'd never get into trouble again. The Treasury, long story short, took about a decade after that early 1990s recession to figure out two things. One, when you tell politicians to follow the line, they eventually can't cope politically with that advice. Uh, and one of the consequences of the Treasury at the time was that the government stopped listening to them, mm. which meant that bad decisions were made in recovery. Two... What happens when the next recession comes? Because we get one of these every 10 years or so. So a guy called Ken Henry, who became the Treasury Secretary under uh, Peter Costello, and one of his deputies, Martin Parkinson, who subsequently became Treasury Secretary uh, during Julie Gillard's government, uh, between them, they figured out, and it's interesting the way they tell this story, they're in a room with a whole lot of young bucks and in, in their department, and they realised that when they looked around the room, this was in 2004, that none of, none of their colleagues had been there in the early 1990s. So none of them had sort of corporate memory of recession. So they decided at that point, let's figure out what happened then and what advice would you give in the unlikely event of another recession or likely event, but an un unlikely event of that in that year, 2004, because that's the beginning of the mining boom. So piece by piece, they figured out that the real issue here was not the advice you give the government to be careful. If you have to spend to support the economy, you have to do it immediately. And you can only do one thing, and that's put cash in the hands of uh, individuals. If you, if, you get, if you get politicians making, up, you know, making their own minds up about whether it's infrastructure or just to give you a contemporary example, car parking spaces at yeah. train stations, yeah. um, none, of that, none of that is of any value at all. What you need to do is put cash in the hands of households as quickly as possible and then... I'm not going too long here, but this is quite, it's quite an interesting thing in terms of what happened uh, last year. Put cash in the hands of people as quickly as possible and then hope that that uh, puts a floor under the, um, under, under the economy. Uh, and that, then that, that transaction gives you, you know, it, the world's gone nuts and you are in a global recession. You may not be able to avoid one. But as we saw during the GFC, when that money went into people's hands, we didn't even have a recession. Yeah. I think, again, long story short, last year, last year there were enough people in the room advising Morrison and Josh Frydenberg uh, that remembered what happened during the GFC and had enough corporate memory sort of instilled in them through the through the sort of um, initiation through the Treasury ranks from the early 1990s. Uh, to give them that, that advice, put cash in the hands of people. Well, I mean, we talk about job seeker, but we also, the job keeper, 
we also talk about JobSeeker, which is the doubling of the dollar, which is probably the single most extraordinary thing they did as a coalition government to make yeah. sure that every Australian had a lot of money in their hands so they weren't going to freak out during the lockdown. Absolutely. So a long answer, but no, quite that, an interesting... It is, yeah, and I think yeah. it's really important to tell that story to, to understand how those decisions were made because looking at, at our response to the GFC and the great success we had with the stimulus package as part of that, I should remind listeners as well, we're speaking with George Megliginus all about his new quarterly essay. But when reflecting on the GFC, um, as you note in the essay, not too long after that was the, the sort of rudd capitulation on climate change and, you know, the, the real death spiral of his government in many ways. Um, and sort of, you know, it's a different set of circumstances at the moment, but we've seen similarly a very kind of proactive and pragmatic response right at the time of crisis, but then a kind of unravelling um, of, uh, I, I guess, capitalising on some of that early success if we look at the, the vaccine rollout staggering along and, and some of the kind of um, tensions between um, a state and, and the federal government as well. So is there kind of a, a story we can draw from these kind of early advantages that we, we, we seem to have and then stuffing it up once we get a little bit further down the line? Yeah, yeah. I've been, been thinking a lot about this, obviously, through the, through the preparation for the essay because um, uh, some of your listeners would, would probably be aware if they are quarterly essay readers that a lot of these essays get written into quite uh, uh, difficult sort of story cycles. Mm. I remember Annabelle Crapp a while ago put out an essay on Malcolm Turnbull. No sooner had she hit send on it, there was going to be a leadership yeah. challenge <laughs> him when he was opposition leader. So, and uh, there was um, David Maher's famous one on Kevin Rudd, which uh, turned out to be uh, written on the assumption that Rudd would win an election, but there was enough in it for you to understand why he lost the leadership to Julie Gillard in, mm. the, sort of, in sort of the fortnight it came out. So I was, there's a couple of things that, were, that, that I needed to keep in mind as I was writing this thing, that um, the virus was still out there and it could hit again. So I didn't want to call sort of victory in terms of the elimination of the virus, even though we had a pretty good example last year in our lovely home state of Victoria. Uh, and it would Melbourne, the only democratic city on the planet, after a major breakout that the virus was able to uh, reduce community transa- uh, transmission to zero. So it was just didn't want to make a call on the virus. But the other thing I didn't want to make a call on is government competence. Uh, and, but I sort of look at that more in the negative. I didn't want to assume that the government would suddenly become competent. <laughs> Pretty safe assumption. <laughs> Yeah, what we saw what we saw last year was obviously a really good emergency response, crisis management, and not just the politicians taking advice because they're afraid that if they didn't take the advice, we'd all get sick and die. The other part of it is that the community was up for what it is politics was asking us to do. Yeah. Our, our, federal, our Commonwealth government and our state governments were asking us to basically suppress consumption and, and stay at home. But they tried it briefly in the US and no one wanted to do it. Uh, in the UK, the government itself anticipated that, that the Brits didn't want to do it. In Australia, you know, it, it was asked of us and we sort of did it, mm. even after we had to go back into the second lockdown in Victoria. So there's obviously a, 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 an obedient, compliant Australian community there and, and we should draw some comfort from that. But when you've got that, uh, that material to work with as a leader, the next thing you do, and this is, this is, even though it's different, it's sort of different but same, the next thing you want to do as, the, as a leader after you've you know, engineered a world's best response to the crisis, in Kevin Rudd's instance it was climate change, in Scott Morrison's it was rolling out the vaccine,
thing, which is procurement, uh, logistics, delivery. Uh, Rudd's was a bit different. Rudd's was sort of get the, get the package together and then negotiate it through Bennett and then, then hold your nerve and sell it to the, to the people of Australia. But it's the same, same thing, really. You're looking at leaders with 60-plus percent approval ratings uh, getting backslapped everywhere they go around the world in Morrison space virtually because, you know, we didn't go into recession during GFC and we managed to eliminate the virus where everybody else is still losing thousands of people a day to it. Now, I don't want to talk too much about Rudd, but when, when Rudd lost the plot on climate change, he did this very weird thing. He pretended he, he pretended it had nothing to do with him. Remember he, uh, the day that Lenore Taylor broke that story that said that they were going to shelve the yep. plane, they weren't going to go to an election with a climate change policy? He raced off to a hospital in Penrith and called a press conference about health yeah, policy. Nothing to see here. Reform. Yeah, got nothing to do with me. What happened to Morrison when the when the when it was clear we weren't going to deliver a jab, at least one jab by October, which was his original deadline, which is his original target? He posted this weird thing on Facebook, which you you still can't find today on his official website, saying, "Oh, we weren't we weren't into this target business in the first place. The virus the virus keeps changing its mind on us, and uh, we're doing the best we can, and we're just going to get on with it." Yeah, and, and, then he, and, and then and then there was radio silence for five days. He didn't take a, he didn't take a question from a journal for five days between April nine and April fourteen. And there's similar and the criticisms thing, with his announcement last week as well, when he when he you know talked about AstraZeneca oh, being available to one to forties. It was a very similar situation. He uh, yeah he. Uh, It'd be great to take three days off work and still get paid at the full rate. <laughs> By the way, and and uh, coming back from overseas, get isolated at home. Mm. He's, but he, he's the only person in the country that get that doesn't go straight back into hotel quarantine. No disrespect to him, but you know he's 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 had two jabs. He should be able to isolate at home, but no other Australian has that has that luxury. No other Australian has the luxury of going going missing for three days um, just because you had a bad Monday yeah. at work. Absolutely. Um, I don't mean to be too harsh. I don't, don't mean to be too harsh because having seen this pattern repeat, what does it tell you? It tells you two things. One, uh, we're, we're good at the crisis, but we're not good at thinking our way uh, out of but not good at the next thing, which is the next thing is um, has more to do with the running of things. So it has, it has more to do with governments, and this is the Commonwealth government we're talking about, uh, organising bureaucracy, organising uh, logistics and delivery. They're not good at that. Uh, and I think, and this is probably the thing that hasn't occurred to Morrison until now, uh, when he, he entered the parliament in 2007, and he would have looked at pink bats, remember the home insulation yep. program that I delivered and then pretended that it had nothing to do with him when he cancelled it. Um, he would have looked at that and said, ah, Labor, I hope I don't know anything about um, about running the country. The vaccine rollout on a different scale, and it's much more important in a way, uh, even though, unfortunately, four young men died during um, the rollout of the um, home insulation program. The vaccine's much more important, but both of them have in common this weird inability of the Commonwealth Remember, this is, the, this is the arm of government that collects money and then gives it to the states to spend to deliver services. When it has to deliver something itself, it's just not that good at it. Yeah. And whilst we've learned all that crisis management, um, whilst we've had our sort of crisis management epiphany, uh, you know, in the sort of aftermath of the early 1990s recession, and now we've had two really good responses, GFC and, and coronavirus last year, the pandemic last year, world's best in both instances, 
in both instances, we haven't been able to come out of this thing um, with a government that knows how to deliver the next big idea it has. Yeah, I wonder and now, speaking with George Megalogene, it's all about um, his new quarterly essay, Exit Strategy Politics After the Pandemic. And, and I think those patterns um, are so interesting to look at to, in a way, sort of anticipate, anticipate um, some of our failures that we might be sort of seeing the beginning of at the moment. But one of the, um, I think we might call it an achievement of the past year, has been the National Cabinet with, um, you know, a sort of more coordinated decision-making where um, state leaders from different political parties sort of, uh, you know, have to engage with, with the federal government on um, in, in terms that are sort of for the benefit of, of, of the broader community. Do you think that the experience of National Cabinet might provide some hope for for governance into the future and, and maybe not repeating some of those mistakes of the past? Yes, I don't... I... Part of me always wants to be wants to be optimistic, as part of me thinks that human beings, once they make enough mistakes, will learn from them. Mm. Um, when we go back to April, when uh, when he missed his targets on the vaccine, he should have known this in February, but he sort of it took him to April to to, to concede it. Uh, remember, there was this. He went to sort of a, he took national cabinet onto a war cabinet footing, and they were going to meet twice a week, and they only did it for a couple of weeks, but. The states then stepped up and started to take uh, direct responsibility for the vaccine rollout, which it should have been in their hands all, all the way through. So you see, even in that little micro that, that little micro example, the national cabinet model adapting to to, uh, to something that's not working. And I think how do I put this? Um, I think the great epiphany when we eventually have it. Uh, out of this particular, out of this phase of the episode, is that the Commonwealth, in cahoots with the states and the territories, has to start figuring out who does what. Mm. And there are about three areas where the who does what there's real overlap. Obviously, there is in education. Obviously, there is in health, and in caring more, more, more specifically, uh, uh, aged care, disability care, and you can you could sort of look at the caring of young children in sort of early learning and then primary school especially. And those three things uh, are things at the moment that sit between federal and state, and we're not that good at it because of that, you know, the, this sort of opportunity for both tiers of government to, to, to buck past to the other when something goes wrong. The Commonwealth, I think, and it should learn this lesson, a very valuable lesson in the vaccine rollout, uh, you know, we're 30-something years into deregulation. We're 30-something years into the Commonwealth having pretty much sold off everything it owned, uh, the public service being sort of thinned down to a point where it just does policy and it, and it does and it signs checks and it sort of runs sort of payment systems, you know, tax collection systems and sort of uh, payment systems. The states... Uh, even though they haven't had this acknowledged, uh, are more responsible now for things that will determine future prosperity. Because a lot of the a lot of the action is in things like infrastructure and in human capital, you know, education. So if the Commonwealth and the states coming out of this thing can figure out how to to better manage the who runs things, and one example I think I'll give you one example that I that I sort of touch on in the essay. In aged care, the Commonwealth response up to this point has been to contract out to private sector. This is a really this is this is an area of public policy where, since Howard, the whole idea is to contain costs. 
in an area where you know your population's ageing and you'll have more people in aged care, whether yeah. in, in residential care or at home. So you know that the demographics are telling you there'll be more of this, not less of this in the future. But this contracting out model, the contracting out model that, uh, you know, cost Victorians three months of our lives last year because the contracting out was the model for hotel quarantine. The contracting out model in aged care uh, won't survive into the future because uh, the public will demand better care. Uh, demand both safer, safer residential care and the option of, of home care. The Commonwealth can't do that simply by continuing to write checks on and then contracting out to the private sector. We're going to have to figure out a way uh, to get the states to run it it has to be humble enough to say that it can't run it itself. This is already admitted it can't run it itself because it contracts out to the private sector. Then it has to figure out that the private sector is not efficient, this thing. So if it could figure out a way to, um, to hand back uh, the running of things responsibility for the states and use its financial power to dictate what, you know, what national standards it wants observed, then you have a model that starts to click into place better, much more democratic, so if there's a stuff-up and you've all got a written agreement that says the state must do blah, 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 if there's a stuff-up, you can point to who's responsible. Uh, yeah. You don't necessarily withdraw money, but you could point to who's responsible. We're not in this position now because, you, did you notice last year, we lost, we lost 800 people in the Victorian outbreak, you know, 650-odd were in, were in aged care homes. And most of them, you know, almost the overwhelming majority were Commonwealth run, not state run. Yeah. There's a couple of state ones in there as well. And no one apparently was responsible for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And this is an issue that touches so many people as well. And, you know, we've had the Royal Commission in, into aged care. So one wonders as, you know, awareness grows of, of some of the really, you know, terrible conditions some people are subjected to, whether that will become more of a sort of policy um, priority in the voters' mind, perhaps. I want to um, talk a little bit about um, universities as well, because this is the focus of one part of the essay. And it kind of plays into uh, your sort of um, analysis Analysis, I suppose, of, of the, the reduced role um, uh, that, that Victoria has played in, in deciding prime ministers in recent times, and also noting that you interviewed Josh Frydenberg for this essay, and 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 write that he is, you know, generally a supporter of the higher education sector. We've seen cuts to higher education and universities left out of JobKeeper. What's kind of going on in that regard, and, and could you imagine that shifting as, you know, for instance, more people move to Melbourne? And, and there's potentially a redrawing of electoral boundaries that might, um, you know, give us a little bit more weight in terms of electing um, electing governments and, and prime ministers. Yeah, we've got obviously Melbourne's picking up an extra seat uh, this election as well. We've discussed this in the past. Yeah, the sort of story before the, before the pandemic was that sort of that ten year period, two thousand nine to two thousand nineteen, you know, close to thirty percent of all the population growth in Australia was in this one city, Melbourne. You know, we went from 4 million to 5 million people in record time. Uh, you know, only the 1850s during the gold rush has there been, has there been a, a more substantial realignment in the, in the, in the, uh, in the population mix in Australia in favour of Victoria and, and, in this case, Melbourne. So we're obviously, we're ob- obviously to fall lockdown, we're in a position where it looked like we might hit a point sometime soon, whether it's the coming election or the one after, where centre of gravity through redistribution of electoral boundaries makes us the swing city and the swing state. Uh, lockdown might sort of slow that slow that thing, uh, but 
not upset in the data, by the way. Uh, Melbourne will still be large in Sydney by the, by the second half of this decade. Mm. And that's because Sydney will continue to lose more people due to state migration. So that's the first point. But the, re- the reason why I sort of had that in the back of my mind when I was writing about uh, higher education, I think sort of the big scoop in the, um, in the essay is the, is the structural analysis of even leading up to the pandemic, uh, how, the, how the Commonwealth government, beginning with John Howard, had switched the focus of the federal budget away from Commonwealth jurisdiction, which is higher education, which is a jurisdiction that, beginning with Menzies and sort of, you know, culminating with free uh, uh, university education under Whitlam, had always been this sort of dream, this sort of goal of the Commonwealth government to save universities and to protect them to, and to enlarge them. Howard had this had this idea that, this, you know, as the as sort of population was growing in the outer metropolitan areas, he wanted to be able to fund low-fee private schools, which he couldn't do under under the previous arrangement. When he switched, when he switched um, uh, the sort of focus of government policy to private schools, inevitably private schools would end up getting more money than higher education. So what he was doing was literally turning those lines on their heads and sort of making the Commonwealth primarily interested in um, in the secondary school system, which is state responsibility, yeah. at the expense of higher education. And we know what happened in the last 10 years. Eventually, eventually the unions tweaked the fact that they're going to get a lot squeezed out of them in terms of Commonwealth funding. So they went out and recruited foreign students and created this sort of that you know, epic new uh, sort of revenue line, uh, which they did very well in whilst the, whilst the borders were open. But when the borders were closed, they had this problem where foreign students, which became sort of the big growth driver for them, suddenly was choked off from them. The Commonwealth didn't then say last year, oh, by the way, sorry about that, we engineered a market response for you now, that market no longer exists, here's your money back. They didn't do that at yeah. all, remember, they denied them job keeping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they, so they, they've decided, and I was trying to get Frydenberg, Josh Frydenberg, to sort of explain to me the why, and he, and he just why, why they left now the jobkeeper, and he said, um, look, everybody, ha- every, every, every sector had to undergo some sort of restructure, so you know we couldn't protect them from that restructure. Which, to my my reading, is that he, he and the government decided on one level, we're going to have to take them off. Uh, dependence on foreign students, and then you can imagine you imagine the sort of the sort of specific concern for them were uh, Chinese students because the relationship was um, with China and with Beijing was obviously a bit strained last year. Yeah, I mean, huge export bad. market, our fourth largest export market. So also, there's you know, I mean, putting aside the pandemic, there's there's economic implications from reducing that sort of reliance as well. Yeah, but I think. Yeah, but I think, I think what they decided, I think what they, so the rational side of their brain says we're going to have to help them, we're going to have to force a restructure because they can't, you know, there might be another pandemic in five years and we mm. don't want them so dependent on foreign students next time around. But, but then what do you do? You have to underwrite that. As a Commonwealth, you have, to, you, have to, you have to step back in. But they didn't want to step back in. And this was, this, so this is the thing that I'm trying to get my head around. Two parts of the story. One, sort of, was it driven by envy? Some people tell me that, look, don't overthink this. There's one, one guy in particular who's very, very well-connected. He says, don't overthink this. This government hates universities. Direct quote. Mm. So, 
Is that right? Well, in the same breath that they denied JobKeeper to the uh, universities last year, and remember, this is a substantial export earner if you identify, um, you know, universities are pulling close to twice as much revenue from overseas as the tourism sector in Australia was for EG. And, you know, only iron or coal and gold are above it. Not above gold, actually. Iron or coal and gas with, with uh, one, two and three, and, and gold is five and tourism six. For Victoria, of course, higher education is the number one export earner, and that's the second. So that's the first part. That's the first part of the equation. They decided to they decided to hurt the universities, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And how do we know that it it was a political decision? Because private schools were actually offered money, whereas the where, where it was denied to the universities. Private schools not only were on JobKeeper, they were actually offered to bring forward of their revenue if they kept the schools open last year. Yeah. A, remember that fight between Morrison and uh, Daniel Andrews in particular about uh, stay-at-home orders for kids? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, So that's Absolutely. one part of it. Yeah. But the other part to it, uh, the other part to it is the why. Why would you do this? Let's, let's assume it's ideological. Why do you think you'd get away with it? And I think that comes back to your original observation about Melbourne. We're not just yet at that point where we will decide an election. We may well decide the next election, but at the moment we're not at that point to decide an election. And the coalition would have looked at the electoral map. You know, this is essentially a, a, a government with prime ministers from Sydney and they all govern on behalf of Queenslanders, but they don't need, they don't really need to care about a state where, where the number one export earner is um, higher education. They don't really need to care about it politically. Yeah, so you can so I think that's the other part to it. Whether, yeah, whether they meant to or not, whether it was a deliberate policy, whether a deliberate drive-by to sort of hurt the universities, politics sooner or later. And, you know, last year, obviously, there was, a, there, was, there was a lot of things they did that they didn't want to do because the politics was obvious they had to do it. In this instance, they didn't think they needed to do anything. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, you can understand it. To be honest with you. That upsets me. That upsets me. Yeah. And I look at it like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see the, the, the politics feeding into policy, which is really the, the sort of um, inverse of, of what we saw last year, even though there was a you know, political benefit to come from um, you know, the virus not really kind of getting a, a full hold on Australia as it did in other countries. Um, yeah. Seeing the way that politics is playing into these types of decisions and, and culture wars and so on is, is definitely sort of troubling for the future. And I mean, just lastly, George, I mean, this is quite a... A big question, but you highlight how sort of big government um, is back. If we look at the US and um, and I mean what Australia went through last year, and I suppose one of the the main driving questions of your essay is, will we just revert to business as usual once we once we emerge from the pandemic? Um, do you imagine that that sort of narrative of, of debt and deficit is gone, or will that come back and continue to dictate politics as we move forward, regardless um, of whether um, you know these types of decisions are, are in the best sort of economic and, and social interest of Australians going forward? Yeah, at the moment, um, sort of as we've discussed, my concern has been very good in the emergency, uh, not so good thinking their way into recovery. So good at avoiding the worst, not so good at um, at sort of capitalising up, up, up of the opportunity of the world's best response to the crisis. The... Um, the government, we know looking at the budget numbers, especially the Commonwealth government, is going to be carrying these big deficits uh, for the next, well, next 20 or 30 or 40 years, theoretically. But government spending is going to be at, at, at sort of, you know, uh, post-war highs 
uh, for a number of years. So it doesn't matter what the colour of the government the government is, whether coalitions re-elected or Labor find some way to pinch power. Uh, we're going to have these big budget deficits, but the deficit itself is less of a question for me than, than what the government does. So what the government thinks its roles and responsibilities are. And we alluded earlier to... Um, to a couple of areas, and, the, and we talked a little bit about aged care. Mm. If the Commonwealth, if the Commonwealth sitting on these big deficits can figure out that, well, I have to live with these deficits for the next, the next 10, 20 or 30 years, at least I should be able to show the people that I'm delivering better services, that I'm using this money to deliver better services. So if they could figure, if they could figure out a way to do that, then that deficit question uh, can go, can go sort of not so much to the back of, to the back of one's mind because you still have to be able to service the debt and you still have to be able to collect taxes um, to, 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 um, to pay for some of the spending. Concern at the moment, the concern at the moment for the next year or so is if the American economy, if the American economy starts to overheat, there's no, there's no fear of it yet, but if, if the Americans, the Americans do this often, uh, they do this every 10 or 20 years, they reset a price after they've a global price after they've stuffed things up themselves. Um, and remember, they've still got the highest death toll mm. coming from yeah. COVID. So there's a, there are things driving them to do things, to, to, to change the way they run their country, that those sorts of things are not operating here in quite the same visceral way. If they end up, if they end up, if they end up uh, getting things restarted and they get back to the unemployment rate they had before the pandemic, which, was, which had a three in front of it, not a four in front of it, and then they have to start increasing interest rates again. Suddenly, the debt that we've accumulated through the crisis uh, becomes more difficult to service. Yeah, then yeah. we start to have some really difficult conversations. Uh, part of this is out of our hands. We haven't mentioned climate change at all. We can we'll sort of leave this for another. Yeah, day. another to maybe next time. Yeah, but this is the big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the big one. So the world. Coming out of GFC, the world didn't want to do anything about climate change. Coming out of coronavirus, it does want to do something about climate change. We wanted to do something about climate change coming out of the GFC and couldn't. Now we don't want to do anything. Yeah, well, I mean, Morris we're is in a, being embarrassed on the world stage. Places. Yeah, we're in a strange place as a country. We, we should be able to lead, but we... I don't know what's uh, I don't know what's in the water at the moment, but uh, uh, it's almost as if we don't want to risk take the next risk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what's in the water either. <laughs> Can't claim to have that knowledge, but um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's it's been we've covered a lot of territory um, this morning, George. Haven't even got to talk about your mob, Richmond, and how they're looking at the moment. But um, maybe we can save that for another time as well. Um, there's much more in your essay that we haven't quite touched on uh, just yet, but people are going to have to go out and buy it and and read it um, to get the full version. It's uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Good to spend um, more time than usual with you. This morning and um, and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks, I appreciate. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And uh, apologies if some of the answers were too long, but it's quite a it's quite a big story, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. And we've got the time, so um, so why not? Thanks, George. Okay, Cheers. appreciate it. Thanks, George Megalogenis. They're talking about his quarterly essay, Exit Strategy: Politics After the Pandemic, which you can um, get at all bookstores and newsagents and online now. It's a really fascinating read and covered a lot of territory there, but um, but there is still um, more that we didn't touch on in that interview. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.